0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, adding MIGs to your practice and the annual Binkhorst lecture at ASCRS 2018.
1: The holy grail of, of, of IOL power calculation is to know where that lens will sit because that is the major cause of problems.
0: First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgical summit, one word, iWorld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2018 Annual Congress of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from John Odette on adding MIGs to your practice and from Oliver Findle on his Binkhorst lecture. I'm here with John Odette. Uh, John, you're talking on a, on a topic very close home from me, which is MIGS. Um, and here's how I want to have our conversation today. Um, Certainly, there are an increasing uh, number of comprehensive cataract surgeons without glaucoma training who are taking on MIGS. And in fact, that's the population MIGS was developed for in the, in the first place. But there are a lot of comprehensive cataract surgeons who are coming to understand that MIGS is really part of um, what a comprehensive practice is and don't have their toes in the water yet. So what I'd like you to do is to give me the sort of lay of the land and then how people can approach this. I mean, someone's first MIGS case is not gonna be a Zen. Uh, so let, let's, let's have you talk about this a little bit.
2: Right, so uh, as you mentioned, the uh, MIGS landscape is huge right now. Um, there's, uh, And I think uh, I have a little different opinion on it, but I don't think there's a right or wrong as to the types of procedures you can use. I know there are many procedures out there, and I think for the uh, comprehensive uh, uh, ophthalmologist or or cataract surgeon, it's important to figure out what is going to be best for you to try and start with. Um, that's n- not necessarily where you will end, but in order to uh, get going with these, you really have to dip your toe in somewhere. Uh, I think Doing some gonioscopy is very important and obviously starting with gonioscopy in the clinic is good, but uh, then you need to start with some gonioscopy in the OR. and It doesn't have to be on a patient you're gonna you're gonna do a MIGS procedure on. Just start with your normal cataract patients at the end of the case. Uh, have your, your um, uh, gonioscope in the, in the room with you and uh, take a look at the angle and start practicing positioning the patient and positioning their head. And then it's it's really deciding what procedure you think you'd want to start with, and uh, as we were discussing, there are, there are many procedures out there, um, and I'm happy to go into to those in more detail. Um, but uh, the the most important thing is getting comfortable, positioning the patient, looking at the angle, knowing your anatomy, and and um, having a plan going in. Because it's di- I mean certainly. Intraoperative
0: gonioscopy, the, the experience for the surgeon is a lot different from gonioscopy at the, at the slit lamp. When I teach MIGS, what I'll, I'll have my residents do is, obviously for, for, a, for a few cases, definitively not MIGS cases, we'll do gonioscopy, and then what I'll have them do is take this Sinski hook uh, in their, their, their dominant hand and just go out and touch the TM. Just to uh, sort of get that that sense of what the what the hand position is going to, going to be, um, so I, I would guess without our having spoken about this first that the initial MIGS procedures that people can start feeling comfortable with are trabecular
2: bypass uh, sorts of, of, of procedures uh, correct and <clears throat> so I, uh, what's common in my practice um, i've uh, done eye stents i've done uh, a lot of Cypass uh, uh, procedures. I've done some cahook c- dual blades and um, getting into the Zen uh, uh, realm as well. Uh, I think from a strictly surgical standpoint, uh, both the Cypass the and the Kahook c- dual blade are both really easy places to start Uh, surgically. The eye stent uh, is where I started and um, where where I started too. Yeah, Yeah, because it was our first MIGS procedure. So, um, you know, I think from a, like I said, from a strictly surgical perspective, that's a little more difficult place to start. But uh, at the same time, if you can do an eye stent, it makes these other procedures far more easy. So I don't think uh, uh, starting there is necessarily the wrong answer either.
0: Right, and and and, you know it's it's not like cataract surgery in the sense that you know if you can't complete cataract surgery in a sitting, it's it's an issue. If you can't get an eye stent in, then you can't get it in, and and no one's really worse off for it.
2: That's exactly right, and even. if you plan to proceed with any one of these procedures and you're just uncomfortable, maybe you get in there and the angle and the head positioning just isn't right, you can always stop. The patient can continue on drops uh, or you can consider an SLT later. There's other things to do. It's not like you have to get this cataract out because you've already got your capsulorexis done. (laughs) Right, right, right. So
0: um, it's, I think it, it's a sort of of a cognitive leap for surgeons to move from trabecular bypass into a a super choroidal stent. Technically, it's 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 not that challenging though.
2: Correct. Yeah. No. I think uh, it's the same. Uh, Rough anatomical area, the the skills are still the same. You still have to uh, be able to do good intraoperative gonioscopy, um, find the right place, position the head correctly, and uh, uh, place the stance. Now, um, it it is of course in a little different location, and I think the results are are very different between um, some of the procedures we do. Uh, I think they, They're all outstanding procedures, and they all have their place, and some of them, I think, will end up coming out winners, and some of them we will end up uh, going by the wayside uh, with time because uh, we'll find out through our results which ones are really working for our patients and which ones are not, and then we get into the whole uh, aspect of reimbursement, which is a whole nother ball of wax as it relates to these MIGS procedures.
0: Right, and and, and which ones can now and which ones will in the future, will be able to do, standalones too, that's all, it's all different conversation. Yeah. Um, but I I, th- I think you'll be with me with this, that, 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 that MIGS has gone from something that you can do to something that you should do, and we're not that far from something that you have to do as part of your comprehensive practice.
2: Correct. I think if um, at this point, you know if you're not considering MIGs you're really almost behind the times at this point Um, you should not only be considering it you should be starting to try and do it Um, it is not from a technical perspective in my opinion it is not more difficult than a cataract surgery. If you can do a a good cataract surgery, you can learn to do MIGs. Um, You're not gonna be as good on your first case as you will uh, 50 cases in or 100 cases in. You weren't as good at your first cataract surgery. I mean, you work with residents, you know this, um, uh, on your first cataract surgery as you are 100 in or 1,000 in. So you will see some improvement, um, but not offering it to your patients, I think is uh, is just... Is, is increasingly problematic. It is, it's not yeah. only problematic, it's just doing the patient an injustice um, when you could f- feasibly get them off their drops or at least decrease their dependence on drops.
0: Yeah, this is great, great stuff. Uh, I. I I always love when I speak with someone and we find that we're both on the same side. Uh, I want to thank you very much for, for bringing this important topic to us, for making it uh, less intimidating for people who are, who are not doing it, and a little bit of goading too, uh, and for being so very generous with your time with us today.
2: Thank you for having me, Josh. All right.
0: I'm here with Oliver Findel. Oliver, you gave a, a, a wonderful, brilliant lecture. To give an honoree here because you were chosen to give the Binkhorst Lecture. Your lecture is uh, was on a, on a subject that's dear to my heart because it deals with optics. I'm a little bit of a nerdy guy, not to suggest that you are. It was on biometry. Can I get you to sort of lay out what the issues were, and uh, how you dealt with them? And then I have some very specific questions
1: for you. Well, I, well, thanks. First of all, I, you know, it was a real great honor to become the Binkhorst lecturer because there's actually very few Europeans that have become Binko's lecturers, and, 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 and getting that at ASCRS is, was a great honor. And wh- what I spoke about, uh, Josh, was on the one hand, um, starting with biometry, optical biometry, is clearly has really revolutionized our measurements before surgery, and we're quite proud because that was actually born in my hometown in Vienna. Um, Professor Ferker, who was actually the inventor of using laser interferometry for measuring axial length, he actually passed away last year, but he uh, sort of bore that idea in the late 80s, in the 90s, um, we did all the, uh, you know, sort of, let me say, phase one, phase two trials, phase three trials, and then later the IOL master came to market. And so I, spo- I spoke about that, so that axial length measurement, luckily, is not a problem anymore. However, having said that, we see that if we do so called error propagation, trying to find out what the reasons are for poor refractive outcome, we actually see that predicting where the IOL will sit in the eye is the main problem today. Um, and um, so I went on to discuss you know what can we do to have a better prediction and one of the things you can do is and that's quite new is to use intraoperative OCT so it's a special OCT it's actually a swept source OCT the same which is used in the IOL Master 700 but in this case integrated into the microscope and what you can do is you can actually measure the capsule position after you remove the contents of the lens so you have to the, the empty capsule bag and you m- measure that Distance of the empty capsule bag where it is, and therefore have a better prediction of where the IOL well will be in that patient after surgery.
0: So, yeah, let, let, I just want to clarify something for me too. So, what you're talking about here, interoperatively, is not aberometry no. what we're talking about is is measuring where structures are in order to know where the where the lens will will, will post up. right
1: because the, pro- the problem about you know interoperative aberrometry makes sense for example in patients post refractive surgery because they have a different cornea their cornea has been worked on but here it's really measuring the capsule position because interoperative aberrometry does not answer that question at all it just gives you an optical aphaic uh, measurement of refraction. That's it, but it doesn't tell you where the lens will sit, and that is the missing link. That is, if you want the holy grail of of, of IOL power calculation, is to know where that lens will sit, because that is the major cause of problems uh, for refractive uh, outliers and, and, and surprises.
0: Now, don't these structures shift during 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 surgery? I mean, the anterior intraocular pressure is higher than the posterior. Is often the case during cataract surgery? Sometimes Absolutely. A lot less
1: during. That's absolutely a problem. So, what actually what we do, so obviously when we do the measurement, we do that after IA. So, we've removed all the cortical remnants, we don't have any viscoelastic in the eye. That's also important. I keep uh, a, a, the irrigating cannula through the paracentesis and have a very low bottle, so I keep the eye at a pressure of about 20 millimeters of mercury. So, that's important as well. And you have to ensure that there is not an iris. Um, capsule contact with a retropupillary block, which you sometimes have especially in myopic eyes. So you have to lift the, the, the iris in these cases, but you can see that because you can see whether there's a contact in OCT. Yeah, you can see. Right? Yeah. So then you lift the iris, so then you have that. But there is the one or other problem, especially in patients with very dense cataracts where you have prolonged phaco time and they maybe also have loose zonules and also maybe uh, the anterior hyloid is not intact that you can have misdirection of, of, of irrigating fluid into the vitreous hydrating the vitreous and that would give you a false measurement. But these are in our experience from the studies we've done. We've done more than 300 eyes. There were probably just maybe one or two percent. So it's a, it's a smaller population. But you're right. There are some challenges, no question.
0: Really, really interesting. Now, you, when when I when I'm evaluating someone for 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 cataract surgery, I routinely, on all cases, do an OCT of the macula. But for me. Mm-hmm that's an instrument that is separate from my biometer. Uh, It doesn't have to be that
1: way now. No, I mean actually the new swept source OCT biometers um, and the one we know best is the Alamaster 700 or at least that's the one we have most experience with. It actually gives you a very very small one millimeter wide OCT scan of your fovea essentially. And we've done a study where we looked at 120 eyes with some comorbidities. so. Epiretinal membranes, macular holes, cystoid macular edemas, and dry AMD. And what we saw is that the sensitivity for actually detecting most of these diseases is pretty good. So it's a good screening device. It's not perfect, and obviously you will still need, an, a, you know, a full-blown OCT if you want to really have better diagnosis. But as a screening device, it's not bad. And that's uh, we've so, so we've had several patients where we you know there was no um, uh, information about any retinal disease. Did our our, our um, biometry and suddenly we see there's something there. We do a proper OCT and then we can actually verify. Oops, that was a, that's actually cystoid macular edema in this patient uh, uh, with with diabetes, for example.
0: Huh? Now. If if these had been all the subjects that you covered in the lecture, it would have been a you know wonderful complete lecture. But it's not, and you also covered uh, some topics with with toric lenses. Can I get yeah. you to talk about that?
1: Well, because of you know refractive uh, outcomes is also about astigmatism, and and so uh, we spoke about uh, looked at, at at outcomes with toric lenses. So we did a study with Peter hoffen from Germany, quite a big study. and We looked at who has residual astigmatism. And it turns out it's mostly those with little astigmatism to start with. So with low toric IOLs, that's where our, um, our precision is not as good as it should be. And I think when we saw again an error propagation, looking at what are the different parts of, of, of prediction where we have uh, worse prediction, turns out that the measurements, if you have a difference, for example, between keratometry and topography, if that difference is quite big, that will predict a poor outcome. So that means we are having difficulties measuring low astigmatism with the machines we have available today. Again, swept source OCT I think will be the me- the way to go in the future. It has high resolution. It's very quick, so you have less artifacts during movement during the measurements. And we also have the posterior surface taken into account. So that gives us better outcomes, um, and that's what we have also shown in in, in a study. Um, additionally, you know. Obviously you want to align your lens as well as you can, no question, so I also spoke about the techniques and the, you know, technology you have in the operating theater which helps you align the IOL, um, but I mean that's something you know. we obviously have to try to be as precise as we can at, at any rate.
0: Yeah, this is marvelous, marvelous stuff, uh, it's just really, really fun topics, fun things. I know that it benefits patients, but mostly it's a fun topic and I'm, I'm so happy that... Most that, people that, don't find that fun. No, oh my god, this is, <laughs> melts my butter. Uh, Oliver, listen, thank you very much for for bringing these wonderful topics to us. And and congratulations once more on a fantastic lecture. Uh, And I want to thank you for the the generosity you've shown us with your time with us today. Thank you. John Odette comes to us from Austin Eye in Austin, Texas. Oliver Findel is chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Hanush Hospital in Vienna, Austria. ask questions of Dr. Odette, Dr. Findle, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.